first casualty I saw was that morning just before we went in and the observation plane was flying over us. And I remember how my heart sank. They shot that plane down and it fell within 10 feet of our boat. Wow. All right. Well, uh, sound like we're in for another great uh, story here and, and experience. Uh, we're listening here to James Jennings. He was a, in the U.S. Navy, a signalman third class, and he's talking about the invasion of Iwo Jima there. So uh, he was actually stationed with the uh, APA Talladega. It was a ship that's an auxiliary personnel attack ship. And um, he's got a fascinating story for us here. So uh, please stick around. My name is Ryan Fairfield. And I'm Tony Lupo. And here we go. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-host while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. All right. Well, here we are in sunny Arvada, California. Hey, easy now. It's not quite <laughs> the politics are. It's not quite California yet. <laughs> Very true. It's on its way. It's right? on its way. Okay. Sunny Arvada, Colorado, in our Mountain Command at Tony Lupo's house. That's right. And uh, we are recording the next series here. This is the James Jennings series here. And uh, um, Tony. Tell me, this is a guy that you interviewed. Tell me how you met the guy and where this interview took place. Well, he was part of the uh, interviews that we conducted in, in Pampa, Texas, uh, back in, gosh, when was that? 2001? 2003? Yeah. Yeah, very early days mm-hmm. for us. It was, in fact, it was the first uh, series of group interviews we ever did where you and, and, and me and, and Bill Lucas went up to Pampa, Texas, interviewed 15 or 20 veterans for a reunion that they were having there. All, it, in, all in one weekend. All in one weekend, totally. And, and th- this was one of them, James Jennings. And, you know, we haven't featured a Navy person in a little while, so I, I, I pulled his, and in full disclosure, this happened so long ago that even though I interviewed him and could read his bio sheet, I wasn't exactly clear what he did. I didn't really remember his story. Well, as it turns out, it's a, it's a pretty good one. As, as we say on The Warrior Next Door, every veteran has a compelling story, whether they were awarded a Purple Heart or a silver star, or fought in the home front. And James Jennings was in the Navy, and it sounds kind of innocuous, a signalman. A signalman third class in the Navy. I'm so like, did he use, like, flags and stuff? So, so we're going to get into that. Semaphore? Yes, we're going to get into that. In fact, I had some big misconceptions about what a signalman did, and we're going to unpack that here in a couple of clips from now. Okay. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, James was a great interview, uh, older dude, salt of the earth, uh, he was basically, um, he was someone who had his own business as a laborer, um, as a blue collar dude in, um, the, the, the panhandle region. And I remember what was really kind of cool about James is he, uh, he kind of got James Dean on me. You know how James Dean was famous for just kind of slouching in his chair, you know, for having this, I don't really give a crap about you sort of look to him. That's kind of how he did. He kind of slouched in his chair and you'll be able to see it when we drop the full uh, interview on YouTube, the unedited version on YouTube. He's just slouching in his chair. He's got this big shock of silver white hair and big square chin. You could tell he was like a salt of the earth worker dude. 
and he brought some uh, some notes with him, and he was a little nervous, like these guys usually are. Yeah. So you're going to hear once in a while, you hear the papers kind of, you know, as he kind of rolls the thing like this, you'll kind of hear this yeah. as he's doing it. And um, it was, it ended up being a really, really uh, good interview. And so today we're going to take our audience on a journey to a side of the Pacific invasions, in this case, Iwo Jima and Okinawa, that you don't often see. And the other thing about these oral histories that I really like is instead of the John Wayne version of, uh, of, of various events, we often get the, hey, I'm a human being, I'm imperfect, I'm flawed, <laughs> and there are certain things I did during the war that I'll tell you about. But you know you're not gonna you're not gonna read about these in, in a Stephen Ambrose book, <laughs> and so you're gonna hear a little bit about a court martial later on. Oh wow, <laughs> that okay. he was almost part of. Um, it's it, uh, was I think, he the subject of, or was he? Yeah, yeah, okay, oh, yeah. Let's just say James oh. Jennings in the two two and a half years he was in the military. He he lived a lifetime of adventure. Okay, <laughs> this is going to be good. It sounds like <laughs> it, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. So. We're going to start off with a couple of clips, like we always try to do when we capture it, and most of the time we do, where it talks about how they got involved uh, with the war. So go ahead and run these clips, Ryan. Could you describe when you heard about Pearl Harbor? Yes, we, uh, when we heard about Pearl Harbor, we had a radio at that time, no television, but we had a radio and we heard it that morning. And my dad, being a veteran of World War II, immediately decided that he wouldn't want to help whatever he could do in the war. So he joined some people in Mineral Wells, Texas, building an army base there, and stood guard at, at the army base in 1941, and I farmed. And at that time, I was uh, 14 years old. Get to work. So um, wow. could you explain how you got into the military? Well, I was, dra- I was drafted. I remember the day that I, that I went up to to enlist or be enlisted. And uh, the, the draft board man told my dad, said, Sam, you can have him for three more months if you want him. Wow. And he said, he's already told his mother goodbye and I'm ready to let him go. Wow. So we left the, our county seat there in Knox County, which is Benjamin, Texas, and went to Lubbock, where I was interviewed to see which branch of the service that I'd like to be in. And when they asked me if I had a choice, I told them yes. It was the Navy, and he said, you're in the Navy. Wow. And so I went in the Navy, and immediately after our induction there, we boarded a train and spent three days en route to San Diego, California. What made you decide to join the Navy? I just thought that I'd rather be in the Navy. My dad was in the Army, but I thought I'd like to be a sailor, so I just thought I'd join the Navy. Could you describe the sort of training you received and what you ended up becoming after the training? What what role you served? At the time we were drafted and went in, they were calling men in the age of 30 to 32 that already had a family. So I, I went with a group of older men and they kind of picked me up as a mascot. We were, they were shoving sailors through boot training in three weeks, hmm. and we were taking what normally you get in six weeks in three weeks. Wow. So yeah. it wasn't easy. They uh, they double-timed us, they run us, they swam us. Uh, I mean, they tried to put us in combat conditioning in three weeks. And immediately after 
San Diego boot training, we were sent to North Island, which is just north of San Diego, and taken uh, advanced training. And there we learned how to swim in the water with uh, fire on top, and <laughs> I'll never forget the first porpoise I ever seen. The whole crew was just like me. They'd never seen a big fish in the water, and they thought it was a shark, so we run over all the guards getting out. We They talked us back in, and we went ahead and made our, <laughs> our swim that morning. <laughs> Porpoise, shark. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm a Michigan kid, right? Yeah, we live in the Great Lakes. We don't and have he's those from things. near Lubbock. Totally. So. <laughs> I, I, I would have been like, yeah, big gray fish with a fin on the back. I'm getting a lot of here. It was comments. We learned how to swim on water with fire on it. Yeah. I've got a quick story on that. So my dad uh, was in the Navy during the Vietnam War, and he was telling me about some of the training that he had to do through boot camp. And he said a couple of the things that were the, the most frightening. One was they had to jump off this really tall tower. I don't know if it's 50 feet, 70 feet, 100 feet. I can't remember. Because they had to make sure they knew how to jump off a flight deck if they had to abandon ship. And he said that was scary, right? I mean, it's been on a high dive that's like, you know, 15, 20 feet in the air, and you've, and you've puckered up. Imagine doing this on something many times higher. And the other thing is he talked about uh, training how to get uh, to swim with the water on fire. Where they, oh where the gosh. water would be on fire, and he and he would tell me in detail. It clearly left an impression on him, and it left an impression on James as well. Whereas you swim up underneath, you look for the fire, and then you splash up in front of you to create a hole, and then you pop up in a hole to take a breath, and then you go down and you keep doing that. You keep making these holes, taking a breath until you swim away from this lake of fire that is a common occurrence when ships are sunk. Isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, I think what would probably be the most disconcerting is that you know, you're in training, and this is what they're teaching you. They're teaching you the negative aspect <laughs> right. of what you just signed up for. Like, hey, your ship could sink, right. and uh, here's how you jump off a, sh- a ship, and here's how you survive in the, when the water's on fire. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, let's make sure they are exposed to some of the worst things that they're going to have to yeah. endure, and it left but, an impression on them. But, I mean, you got to do that. Obviously, that's part of the risk. Absolutely. You know, you got to do it and everything. Another thing I was going to no- note is if, if you hear a lot of people talking yeah. in the background, that's the rest of the veterans out in the common area of the museum the festivities uh, talking and telling their own stories i, oh, think I heard mike porter back there at one point talking yep. he was the kind of one of the guys that was always a staple there at the museum in pampa um but yeah you were interviewing him like in a little side room uh, and everything yep. and, and it, it was not soundproof obviously, it, and so. again we've said this over and over again right this is just ryan and i doing this uh no crew nothing like that you're gonna hear a phone's ring you're going to hear people bump into the door. It was really <laughs> festive. I mean, it was really cool. For people who haven't been to the Panhandle of Texas, it's a lot like you'd imagine it would be. There's not a lot there. Right. It's pretty flat. It's pretty sparse. And to go to a reunion for an airbase that's not even there anymore, it was only active during World War II, and see this number of vets back in 2003 show up for this reunion was really cool. It was really cool. Yeah. You know, and and you think about it, you're in the, the Panhandle of Texas, like Tony said, this is the high plains, okay? There's, like Tony said, there's not a lot up uh, out there. And these are guys who would have had a family lineage of being the hardy guys that moved out west yep. in the 1800s. You yep. know, their families. Would Dirt have. farmers. And these guys are, as you said, salt of the earth, really uh, rugged individuals. Yes, they know? are. All the people we interviewed that were from that area were like hardcore, blue-collared, 
you know, weathered, wrinkled skin type of people. Big, tough, rough, thick, gnarly hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just, just badasses, basically. Yeah, you realize when you shake a guy's hand and it feels like a catcher's mitt, <laughs> that you're a little soft one that t- plays with computers all day. <laughs> it's not making the equivalent impression back on him. He's like, did, did you shake my hand? I didn't feel anything. Did you? <laughs> Were you some kind of sissy boy? <laughs> I mean, you know, these, these people live, live the life. And what about the part where the draft board says to his dad, oh, hey, yeah. you got three months. He's like, take them now. We're good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I was also thinking about how, you know, he's like, which one do you want to be in? Yeah, the Navy. Okay, well, you're That's the Navy. really uncommon because you're right. Usually when you get drafted, it's like you're going here. The fact that they even allowed him to consider which branch. How, how early was this in the war? Yeah, so let's do a quick timeline. So on December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, he was 14 years old. Oh. He, he mentioned his dad was in World War II. He wasn't. He was in World War One. He was an ex. He was an ex uh, veteran. And uh, when the war effort kicked in, what his dad did as a veteran was signed up to help build the, the, a, a, a military base yeah. near Mineral Wells, Texas, near there where they were living. And he was 14 years old at the time in 1941. So he he farmed. You know, his job was get your butt out there and do all the stuff that farmers do back then, all of which was hard. Much of it was dangerous. And he did that until he was 17. So this would have been really early 1944, before the big push into Central Pacific, where we went into the Marianas and Saipan and and, uh, uh, attacked the Philippines and Okinawa and Iwo Jima, all that. He was basically of age right around there, and he was 17 years old. Uh, and and you're right. So that late in the war for him to be drafted and given a they choice, give him a choice. Yeah. Usually you're drafted into whatever drafts you, you yeah. know, whatever branch. So that that was that struck me as as strange. And maybe they knew the people or something. Like, well, which one do you want to be? In? Maybe. I mean, the draft board was already talking to the old man who was a veteran of World War One. Yeah. There must have been some sort of yeah. like you know, hey, okay. bring your boy down. We'll let him choose which one he wants to go into. Yeah, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah. the Navy was dangerous, and people were drafted into the Navy as well, but not to the degree that we saw frontline infantry troops. That's where most of the attrition was, if you want to use a word for a bunch of people dying. Um, but the bottom line is, it, it from all the interviews we've conducted, the people who were, were drafted typically don't tell us that they had a choice. Yeah, and, and, and then for him, uh, for them to cram six weeks of training into three uh, strikes me as desperate, Yep, I mean, for on our on our behalf. Oh, and, and what about his comment where he was training with, at this point in the war, they were bringing people ages 30 to 32 in. Oh. So here's a 17-year-old yeah. kid, he gets drafted, they're mm-hmm. having an abbreviated uh, boot camp, and then he's, he's people bringing in our, our old dudes, yeah. Not, you know, I mean, in their 30s. I mean, we hear this all the time that, you know, when you're 17 years old and you look at someone who's 25, that's an old man, mm-hmm. you know, especially in this era. Uh, and so, yeah, this this is showing, wow. this is showing the thing that we've heard and read quite a, li- uh, quite a bit about as the war went on and we were fighting a two-front war against a couple of very powerful enemies. We had to um, hasten and lower the standards that we had pre-war to get men into the fight. Well, on the European theater, um, around this time, you would have had the Battle of the Bulge that would have come along and yep. had completely decimated a lot of the U.S. Army, um, you know, frontline uh, front infantry. And so there was a big push to bring people into that. I had a great, uh, a great uncle that um, was drafted into the U.S. Army, and he was about 32. 
Yeah. And he was the old man yes. in the outfit. And they kind of picked on him a bit for being the old man and stuff. But he fought against the Siegfried line, yeah. you know, and everything. And so that would have been that. But then over here on this side of the of the war of the world, um, you were getting ready for what was coming, which was the Japanese invasion. Yeah. And so they needed to get guys in service, I think, not only because they'd lost a lot of people in the Philippines and, you know, and everything, but So you mean Japanese invasion? You mean you mean our push to go invade their home the, islands? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking yep. about. Yep. Um I think they probably knew that they had to get to get a lot of people in the, in the service to be ready for that next big phase, which would be the inevitable invasion. Yeah, especially with all of the, the the ships and tanks and planes that we were building, we had to put bodies in them. And in fact, uh, the next couple of clips are going to speak to specifically what he would do during the war and which ship he would serve on. We came back, we were sent to Oceanside, California, to the Marine base for what they call combat conditioning. And believe me, it was just that. There I struck to be a Sigma third class. I'd already made Seaman first class, so I decided I wanted to go into communication, so I struck to be a Sigma, and I went to studying Morse code and semaphore, which is visual communication. We uh, had, we spent quite a, quite a while at uh, Oceanside, California, and we had a few liberties, and of course we'd go into L.A., and, and uh, but when we got our orders, we boarded a, a train and, and went to San Francisco and went aboard a brand new APA, which we thought was the greatest ship in the world, but it was really just a flat tub that carried a troop to shore. It was an amphibious personnel attack, and it would just come off the shipyards uh, and uh, wasn't, wasn't uh, fully equipped. They uh, finished putting the guns and and uh, some of the equipment on the, especially the navigational equipment on the ship after we had went, a, went aboard. And after we got the ship ready, they let us take a, what they call a shakedown trip down the coast for about one day distance and back and in the, in the, to the dock and in a harbor where we was went over with a fine-tooth comb to see that we was in ship shape to go into the battle. A one-day shakedown crew? So it's like a test drive. I mean, we've talked about shakedown cru- uh, cruises before, yeah. and they can last weeks, months. So let me, we just talked about <laughs> the sense of urgency that right. we had at this point in the war. Right. So let's talk about this really quick. The USS Talladega was he called an assault personnel attack ship. I've seen on the research, it's, it's also the auxiliary personnel attack ship, regardless of what it's called. It was a, a Haskell-class attack transport. It was uh, a new generation of what they called fast assault ships. Uh, prior to these sort of ships being laid down, the sort of uh, troop transports and supply ships we had if they, if they knocked around at 10 knots, life was great. These new ones could go 17 knots, 20 knots, and he's going to speak to that and the importance of that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. The okay. other thing is this ship was laid down on June 3rd, 1944. But six months later, that's not long when you're talking about a ship that weighs, you know, what, 10,000, 14,000 long tons, mm. so not yeah. a small ship. Um, in six months, it was, uh, no... Less than that, in four months, it was commissioned. And then 
Three and a half months after that, it was landing troops on Iwo Jima. <laughs> so th- think about what, what the American military is able to do. This is the arsenal of, of democracy, democracy in both, action. Both human, both men and material. It's firing on all cylinders at this point in the war. You got a ship that you laid down in June. Five months yeah. later, he's on a shakedown cruise. Three and, a month, three and a half months after that, less than a year. We're talking seven and a half months. Almost just a little over half a year. You went from having nothing to a ship with a regiment of really well-trained, in this case, army soldiers, landing all the way across the other side of the planet. <laughs> how, how, how crazy is That's that? That's mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and thank goodness that you know, our country was positioned in a, a place in the world where we we weren't being bombed, we weren't we weren't being molested, you know, with with oh, yeah. uh, with ships or troops or planes, you know, attacking us. We were able to continue our industrial progress uh, unimpeded. unimpeded yeah. Really, yeah. yeah. And and a few other things about the ship, really quick. The ship itself had four hundred eighty enlisted men and fifty six officers, so it's a pretty healthy complement. It could carry about fifteen hundred men and eighty seven officers. Mm. So it it could carry either. Um, you know, basically 3,000 tons of equipment, or uh, it could carry what amounted to, it wouldn't be a regiment, more like a, maybe a battalion or two mm-hmm. of soldiers, all in a single unit on a ship that can be inserted uh, on a beach, en bloc, ready to go into action. And and how would they do that? Well, let's talk about the other thing that he said in this clip. He became a signal man. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Ryan, but my thought of a signal man was like the dude with uh, that you see in those old black and white photos with the light that they can go in Morse code by <laughs> flicking the, the louvers to flick, yeah. flick, 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 yeah. flick. Or I thought it was the guy that had the flags that did semaphore, yeah. which he just mentioned, you know, but at one point. But I mean, but, but it was it was, it was a, basically a, a a ship dude doing signal stuff, and I'm kind of like, yeah, I wonder what this is going to be. Well. They do that, but it's that's really not what most of the signal men did during World War II in the Pacific. So I read from a common source, what did a signal man do in the Navy? Well, these Navy men set up beach communications, beach, that's land, beach communication uh, stations between ship and shore using the semi for light or flags and Morse code to pass messages from land commanders to ships offshore. The signalman with the telescope read the ship's semaphore signals and passed them on. What I didn't appreciate, nor did I remember, is that James was going to land on the beaches with these soldiers. Yeah, he wasn't going to be on the ship the whole time. He was going to be on the soil. Exactly. In the thick of it. Exactly. His job was, as the people on land needed stuff, equipment, resupply, his job was to, to do that until the ship had completely disengorged everything they needed, loaded, oftentimes casualties, back on the ship and left. Yeah. So he was on the beach, on the assault beach, like at, at, at places like Iwo Jima in Okinawa. I mean, it's incredible. And, and semaphore, semaphore, S-E-M-A-P-H-O-R-E. Oh, I didn't know much about that. The ancient Greek word for semaphero, which means sign bearer. <laughs> So <laughs> a semaphore system uh, is a system conveying information at a distance by means of visual signals with handheld flags, rods, discs, paddles, sometimes just your bare hands. The information is encoded by the position of the flags uh, to the left and right of you as you raise them up and down in, in different angles and positions. 
It is red when the flag is in the fixed position. So when they stop, that's a letter R, and then they move to something else and stop, that's the letter Y, A, N. So they actually have to do this by letter. They don't have like shorthand with these things, Exactly. In fact, in this article, they show the 30 different um, semaphore signals. Um, And because it's really hard to describe this on a podcast, I'll do some of the ones that are easier to define. So, uh, so for example, the letter R is just your arms uh, straight out uh, at ninety degree angles. Okay, that 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 that's the R. Um, you know, another one, uh, the P is if you have one hand straight above your head and the other one at a ninety degree angle, that's P. And and there's there's other types of uh, sim, uh, symbols or uh, signals is the word I'm looking for. Uh, to do with numerals, uh, to cancel and all disregard the previous signal, to rest, to put really? a space in. Oh my! So wow. I mean, it's yeah. it's one thing when you're doing Morse code and you got the little ticky thing, tick 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 tick. You know, you can really flick through them. But man, these dudes. Let's just hope it wasn't like a really long message. You know, when they're up there having a because I mean they're just they're having to do this and yeah. and I just didn't know. And the other thing I didn't know is that the origin of the flag semaphore originated in 1866 with the the the, the Royal Navy. Oh, really? Yeah, they were the first ones to use and to adopt this system. And it was actually based, uh, some of it, on uh, various types of Morse code that existed at the time. So it's been around for a while. And um, the flags that they use uh, are colored differently based on whether the signals are sent by sea or land. So if you're at sea, if you're on the ship, your, your flags will be colored red and yellow. It's called the Oscar flag. And when you're on land, which is what what James would have yeah. been on, his flags would have been white and blue, called the Papa flag. So what was the maximum distance that they could be to be able to communicate? Uh, so w- this article discusses that, and it just depends on the conditions. Right. So what, what sure. they say is that um, what they would do is they would have uh, further than you would think. You're on land. You're the semaphore. The semaphore. You're the flag dude. You're being told the message that you need to convey to the ship. Standing next to you would have been someone with high-powered binoculars looking at the ship you're communicating with. On the ship would have been another semaphore dude and another person with high-powered binoculars. So for as far as these high-powered binoculars could see each pair of semaphores, that would have been the distance. So in many cases, it would have been Many hundreds of yards away, maybe even maybe even miles away, depending on how well magnified. I are. am trying to think. Okay, how would you organize? I, I mean, do they do they radio ahead? Like, does the ship radio to shore and say, "Hey, uh, get get Group B over here. We've got a message for them to go to their commander." Or do you just walk over to the position where the ship's going to be looking? And like, hi, my name is Bob. Right. I want this one, and you and you wave it out, <laughs> right. and then they bring. Hold on, just a second, from back from the ship, and then I don't know. I mean, I'm completely making a fool of myself. Probably just, I just wonder how they do that, though. How do you organize who's talking to who? I, I, you know, I don't know. And this is one of these things where we can lean on our audience. There might be someone who's listening who did this job in the Navy. They still use semaphore semaphore today. This is not dead. It's still used today. And imagine these invasion beaches where you have literally hundreds of ships that are all disgorging men mm-hmm. and materiel, and the they have to go in a certain area. These units have to stay together. You have to uh, send uh, supplies in on an as-needed basis. You just can't dump it all on the beach. It'd be chaos. 
And imagine what the radio traffic would be like. It would be insane. You, mm-hmm. you would never be able to have enough frequencies and channels for no. each, each ship shore segment to talk to each other. So this was an unsophisticated but reliable way, and it's, it's, it's a way that the, it's not like the, the Japanese could tap into this electric signal and then be able to decrypt what you're saying. It's, it's right. secure. It's secure. And it, it, will, it allowed ships and shore to maintain a base level of communication needed to continue to supply the troops and the material when they needed at the place that they needed to be disgorged at. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's amazingly simple. It is. <laughs> and yet genius. Yeah. You know, so I, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. I was going to make Ryan raise his hands for the R-Y-A-N for his name. <laughs> but being this is a podcast, it just wouldn't be as impactful. No, I don't and think it, people would, would be able to visualize that. Uh, totally. And not only that, but I'd probably screw it up anyway. So, okay. So that's a, that, 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 that is a signal man. Okay, so now in these next series of clips, um, we're, he's going to talk about uh, some additional training uh, outside of the United States in Hawaii and, and him finally... Finally, I mean, actually, this is happening so quick, I can't believe it, moving into the theater of operations. All right. So where'd you guys ship out to? What was your first assignment? We I didn't know exactly where we were going, but we had a pretty good idea, and sure enough, we went to Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands. And there we uh, trained. We, uh, we got to go ashore, and I saw all the ships in the harbor, and it was a pitiful sight. Really? And I went to the cemetery, the National Cemetery, and saw, uh, read all the names that was lost on the Pearl Harbor attack. And of course, the, the battleship that's got so many people in, that's still in it, that's a monument there in the, in the harbor now, the Arizona. Yeah. Uh, was there, but it wasn't uh, cut up or anything. It was still there. It's like it went to the bottom. Yeah. And I, uh, I can remember well what it looked like. Um, what sort of training exercises did you guys do in Hawaii? We picked different beaches on the on the different islands, and it was supposed to be uh, the similar to what we were going to be going into battle on. And of course, we never knew at that time that our battle would be Iwo Jima, but that's what we were training the Marines for. And uh, you can't imagine that, uh, that we we, they, we took them in just like we were under fire. And they were fully clothed with helmet, guns, and all. Just like they would be going in when they went into Iwo Jima. So what was your role during these exercises? What sort of duties did you perform? I was just on the boat with the, with the, with the other three men that operated the boat. Our assignment was a LCVP, which was a Lazenby Craft personnel, which carried them ship to shore. Now, they, we had two LCMs on our ship and 31 LCVPs. Wow. When I, we got our orders to go aboard the ship, I'm going to back up a little, I had the opportunity to either go or stay ashore. Or stay My on lieutenant ship. come to me and said, Jennings, you have chronic seasickness. And you cannot, uh, I cannot force you to go into battle or go aboard a ship. If you would like to stay here, we we can fix it where you'll stay. And I said, well, I've trained this far with this group, and and I think I'll just go with them. And he said, uh, I'll help you all I can, 
And so he gave me a special pass to the, to the bread locker, to the butcher shop, where I could pick my food. And he carried ashore aboard the ship when we went aboard a box. And he gave it to me the first night. And it was a box of mint leaves. And he told me if I just put one of them under my lip, when we started out in rough sea, it would help me from being so sick. And believe me, I got sick every time we moved. Oh, wow. So did the uh, did the mint leaves help at all? Oh, yeah, they helped. But uh, I got to where I could I, I could uh, I could uh, withstand the seasickness because in after a little while I'd uh, I'd get all right where it wasn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be where I wasn't head swim, but I'd I'd be it's just like our sickness. Seasickness is something you don't cannot get over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mint leaves, right? I mean, in old school, whether it works or not doesn't I matter. Ginger, I mean, ginger is more effective. It, well, I think it, you know, and I'm surprised they wouldn't have had that available, or maybe they didn't know. I don't know. But. It, and it either works because there's actually some oil in there that helps you, or it's a placebo. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, it doesn't matter. He mm-hmm. felt like it worked, and it did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize that 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 the Navy and the wartime Navy could be so accommodating to somebody who had seasickness. Yeah, but, but they were, and including giving him a special pass to the food locker, so you know he could skip the greasy pork chops and and have like bread and butter or whatever's better for seasickness than a greasy pork chop, right? Yeah, and I was a bit a little bit confused, but then I realized what he was talking about. He kept saying that you've got chronic seasickness, and you can you know you can either go aboard ship or stay here, and I thought he meant that that was being spoke to him about while he was on the ship. But he wasn't. He was just talking about how they were on land in Hawaii at that point, yeah, getting and ready to ship out. Yeah, they're like, can yeah. you ship out with us? Yes. You know, are you going to be able to overcome this? Yeah. And well, uh, well, kudos we'll to him, him for stepping up and being like, no, I've trained with these guys. I want to keep going. And That's great. That. We hear that a lot. And earlier in a clip, you heard him going into Hawaii. He would have been in Hawaii based on his, his unit reports. Uh, basically, December 1944, uh, three years after Pearl Harbor was attacked, and the Arizona was still there. I mean... You can remember there were ships that were that like the Oklahoma that flipped upside down, and there right. were all kinds of damage that they were trying to fix. They had to do triage, and they would just leave the Arizona there until after the war. Then they started chopping down the bits and pieces that were sticking out and everything. So, how much of a trip that would be to have been fourteen years old, hear about Pearl Harbor, maybe see newsreels or photos of it, black and white photos in the TV about it? Avenge Pearl Harbor was a rallying call. Right. And now here you are three years later, training and hanging out and looking across and seeing this scorched wreck with with 2,000 soldiers still aboard it. What better of a monument to light a fire in your newly minted Navy and Marines when they come into Hawaii on their way out to fight than to see that? I couldn't agree more. And what about his mindset, his sentimentality? You and I have both been to Hawaii. We've both been to the American Cemetery there. Yeah. Are you talking about Punchbowl? Yes. Okay. Which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a very honorific place. He didn't have to, but he mm-hmm. rolled in there to, to pay tribute, it sounded like, to the war dead. Clearly, the connection that some of these soldiers had, especially fighting the Pacific, with the events of Pearl Harbor would would resonate. It, it wasn't like this thing that, you know, would carry him through the toughest times, 
but it was this thing that constantly reminded them, you know, why we were fighting there. That we didn't start this war, someone else did. And the only way to make sure that we're safe and it doesn't happen again is to go defeat them. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was really impressed. And, and, you know, we see, if you go to the Punch Bowl now and check out the cemetery, you see a finished thing because we're not in the midst of war. I can only imagine what it would have looked like. You got to remember, you go uh, through there now, uh, and there are literally thousands of graves oh, from yeah. the World War II in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. I mean, those, the men who were dying, this is 1944, right? We've had a lot of casualties already, would have been freshly interred there. There would have been I'm burials sure, going on all the time. I, I, I was just going to say, it was actively, I'm sure it was actively going on while he was there. Yes. And it was probably, uh, 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 there were probably a lot of burials happening. And I never and, and thought about that before. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to like the cemetery in Normandy and the punch bowl. I'm used to just seeing the thing many years afterwards, the saving I mean, private Ryan moment. But he was there when there would have been freshly dug graves everywhere. I mean, he would have, you know, been there December 44. That would have been right after uh, the Philippines. Yes. You know, um, and, uh, yeah, and I, and during the Philippines still would and, have been yeah, hot. It was still raging. It would have been you know, uh, it would have been after the Marianas. It would yeah. have been after truck after all of that. I mean, basically, he came into the war right when we were going right into the heart of Japanese into Iwo Jima and then Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, he doesn't mention it, but I did some research. The regiment that would be on his ship that he was training with that he was they were doing these amphibious landings. They were the 28th Regiment of the 5th Marine Division. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the unit. That's the Marines. Those are the devil dogs that are on his ship at this time. Okay. So they're finally underway. He's got Mintley's for, um, for, for sickness. I, I want to read from the, the Talladega uh, source here. Uh, it's a quick paragraph, and it's a nice summary about what he was about to do and explain in these next several clips. So the Talladega sortied from Saipan after they left Pearl Harbor as part of Task Group 56.2. They arrived off Iwo Jima on the morning on the morning of February 19th, with that's D-Day, and th- some of the men that they were carrying aboard, as I mentioned, this 28th Regiment, included four Marines pictured in Joe Rosenthal's famous flag-raising photograph on Iwo Jima. They debarked from the Talladega to climb Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. They included Ira Hayes, Franklin Sousley, Harlan Block, and Mike Schrank. I'm sorry, Mike Schrank. Yep. After landing the troops, she remained on the beaches, embarking combat casualties for six days before heading back to Saipan. So what you're about to hear is is James' account of Iwo Jima. And remember, this guy's on the beach, and not only is he in charge of the messaging needed to get the troops, ultimately, who would go up to Mount Saribachi, and the material, but also to, to coordinate the crafts to bring them the, the casualties back. And really quick, there's a couple more initialisms that he said. He mentioned something called the LCVP. That's the landing craft vehicle personnel. That's a Higgins boat. Mm-hmm. So the Higgins boat was designed by Andrew Higgins. They made more than 23,000 uh, of these boats. They are the boats that you see most commonly in movies like S- Saving Private Ryan, where they're wooden boats. They go on the beach, they drop the front ramp, and you run ashore. That's That's what this boat is. And the other one that he mentions which I had never heard of before, is the LCM, mm-hmm. 
that's landing craft mechanized, that's not a single type of ship. It's a whole host of different types of ships that were designed uh, by the U.S. Navy and, and Britain that were strictly designed to move motorized vehicles, not human beings. They were designed to load uh, tanks and half tracks and trucks and whatnot, and then move them and then di- and then put those onto the beaches. Okay. So landing craft motorized, it's not one type. There's there's all kinds of different types of these, but one, the Higgins boat put the men on shore, and then the LCMs put the machines on shore. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go ahead and listen to the next series of clips about his experiences on EWO. Well, that part of his story is going to have to wait till next week, Warrior Next Door listeners, unless, of course, you're a premium subscriber, and we have people signing up for that, which gives you access to all the podcasts, so you don't need to wait until the next week to hear the next episode. And what you'll hear next week is a lot more about James Jennings' experiences on the invasion beaches and on board the ship as they invaded Iwo Jima, where the United States would incur more casualties than the Japanese, the only time that would occur during the entire Pacific War. Until then. Okay, you may have heard me mention that we now have a preferred subscriber list for as little as $5 a month. Uh, That money goes into helping Ryan and I produce this show. It's as simple as that. And what it allows you to do is to have access to uh, the entire episode, uh, the entire series, I should say. So, for example, premium subscribers will be able to hear um, all four episodes of James Jennings with, um, without having to wait uh, week after week after week for those to uh, be made available. But more importantly, it just shows a commitment on our listeners' part to appreciating the fact that they enjoy listening to these podcasts and it costs money and we're not really doing this to make money. We both have day jobs. We're doing this because we have a passion for it. But it sure helps to be able to have people, uh, you know, pitch in. And we have four new subscribers that I'd like to name. One is Don uh, Quattlebaum, who I will be reading a little bit more about some of the emails that he sent us recently, which are really cool. And then Bruce Tolda. Thank you very much, Bruce. We appreciate it. And Jason Muntz, who is a relative of Keith Muntz. Keith Muntz, who we featured on a podcast recently. And last but certainly not least is Nathan Geyer. Ryan and I have known Nathan for, oh, geez, for as long as we've been interviewing people, uh, over 20 years. And uh, we've had a chance to work together. Uh, he and his wife, Katie, they have they have twins as well. Um, as people on our podcast know, um, Amanda and I have twins. And um, Nathan's a super, super smart guy and an awesome dude. And Nathan, we really appreciate you, um, you know, pitching in to help us out. And we're glad you liked the podcast. That's high praise from someone who um, whose opinion we respect immensely. So for those who have helped, we just really appreciate it. And thank you very much.